Let's pray. Our Father, we, we come before you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has paid the price for us. Lord, I pray that as we sit under the authority of your word, that you would give us humble hearts to receive you, that you would teach us to know you better, and that we would seek to serve you because of your great love and compassion for us. As I preach, Lord, I pray that you would use my words in a positive way, that you would help me to be clear, that you would also help me to be correct. I pray that, uh, I pray that you would just give me the humility to count these people as more significant than myself. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are <clears throat> resuming slash continuing our series in the book of Mark. We'll be in Mark chapter 7 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there is a hardback black one in the pew in front of you. Turn to page 1564 in that Bible if you want to follow along. It's good to follow along because, as it says in Second Hesitations 4.13, your pastor might lie to you. And so it's, well, I'm, I'm kidding. That Second Hesitations is not in the Bible. But uh, if you don't follow along, you have no idea if I'm nuts or if I'm wrong or if I'm right. And so it's good for you to, to make sure to hold me accountable to the Word of God. Page 1564, 1564, 1,564. <clears throat> when Jesus arrived in the earth, he arrived as a humble Jewish peasant in uh, the first century in a little strip of land called Israel. At the time, Israel was not even close to being the most powerful, the most important, the most significant country in the world. But that's who Jesus went to. He went to the Jews in Israel who were under the thumb of the, the Roman Empire. Now, one would think that if God himself were to come down to the earth and begin to create a new kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, that he would go to the most powerful people in the world and say, you need to get with the program. I'm here now. I'm going to be the king. Everybody follow me. But that's not what he did. He went to peasants in Israel in the first century. People who were completely uneducated. People who were, for the most part, despised in the world. But people who were God's people. In the Old Testament, the Lord had a specific group of people that he worked with. He worked with the Israelites, the Jews. He led them out of Egypt when they were enslaved. He led them into the promised land. He drove their enemies out from before them. And allowed them to live in a, in a land and, and to work in vineyards and fields that they didn't plant. Houses that they didn't build. God was with them and for them constantly. 
over the course of time, the Israelites fell into sinfulness, meaning they turned their faces away from God, chose to go their own way and to seek, uh, yeah, seek their own way. That's what they were doing constantly. Over the thousand or so years that they were living in the land of Israel, the Lord would send prophets to them who would say, go back to God. Stop going your own way. If you go your own way, things are going to go bad for you. Go God's way. God's way is the best way. Constantly, they would beat and stone and kill those people who would come to them and tell them to go God's way. Because in, in people's natural state, we, we don't like going someone else's way. We like going our own way. And if our own way lines up with someone else's way, then we're good with that. But heaven forbid that I be forced to go a way that I don't naturally want to go. And so when the prophets of God came and said, stop going your own way, it's going to go bad for you, they would kill them because they didn't like being told what to do. I am very much like them. I don't like being told what to do. If you tell me not to do something, the thing that I want to do most is what you told me not to do. And I would be willing to bet that nearly everybody in this room is exactly the same way. Because human beings in our natural state are selfish, sinful people. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden were created by God. They were created perfect. And they were told, you can have, you can eat from any tree in the garden that I have planted except for one tree. What was the one tree that they wanted to eat from? They wanted to eat from the tree that God said, don't eat of it. And because of that, the world is under a curse. And the world is spinning out of control. And ever since those first people, all the way through to God's people, the Israelites, people have constantly wanted to go their own way. You and I constantly want to go our own way. Even if you're a Christian, you constantly want to go your own way. It takes tremendous discipline to take a step back and to go God's way. Eventually, the people of Israel living in that little strip of land were conquered by people called the Assyrians. They were carried away. Then a while later, they were conquered again by the Babylonians. And they were taken away into exile into, into the land of Babylon. And then they were conquered again by the Persians. And then they were conquered again by the Greeks. And then they were conquered again by the Romans. And you just see constantly throughout the course of history, people who refuse to go God's way have no protection from other sinful people. The state of the world when Jesus arrived was that God's people were so battered and beaten down, they had no idea who they were anymore. And that's when Jesus was born to them. And Jesus grew up among them. And then Jesus began to preach to them saying, 
The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. The good news that God himself had come. He wasn't sending any more prophets. He wasn't sending messengers. He himself was coming and was there. And that's where the book of Mark opens to Jesus stepping out into the world and declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand and that it's time to repent and to believe. And he went to the Jews, the people of God. Now, the Jews at the time were not very thrilled that Jesus was saying these things to them because they liked to believe that even in the midst of all of the things that were happening to them, all of the people who had conquered them, all of the taxes they were having to pay, all of the oppression, they liked to believe that if they were just good enough, that they would be okay in the end. Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, you need to repent. That means you need to turn away from the way that you're living now and you need to start following God. Now they believed that they were following God. They believed that they were doing very well. They believed that they were following the Old Testament law really, really well. They believed that they were morally upright people, basically good. That's what they believed about themselves. And Jesus comes onto the scene and says, nah, you've got to turn away from the way that you're living. You need to stop trying to be good enough. And you need to put your faith in me and you need to follow me. This was completely intolerable to the Jews. How dare you tell me that I have to turn away from the way that I'm living and follow you? How dare you tell me that I'm not a good person? Isn't this, in a sense, kind of the way that we are now? What if someone were to come up to you on the street and say, you're not a good person, you need to turn away from the way that you're living? What would you say to them? You'd probably say, you don't know me. You don't know how I live. I'm a good person. I'm very nice. Most of the time, I'm not even rude to people. This is what Jesus faced when he came to the people who were supposed to be God's people. The Son of God. The spotless, sinless Son of God of the almighty God, who the Jews claimed to be following, arrived on the scene and told them that they were not good enough and that they had to repent and put their trust in Jesus because only Jesus is good enough. Only Jesus is good enough. He said, you need to, you need to turn away from constantly trying to be good enough because as you try to be good enough, it's already too late. You see, God has a law in the Old Testament. I mentioned it before. He has a law. It's called the Ten Commandments. And this is God's basic standard of what you need in order to be a good person. Let's do the test. Exodus 20. We're all going to do it together. Exodus chapter 20. Keep your thumb in the passage that we're going to get to, maybe eventually. Let's see. Hmm. Exodus 20 verse 12 says, Honor your father and your mother. 
Raise your hand if you've done that perfectly your entire life. No, okay. Well, that's one. Uh, let's see. You shall not steal. How many of you when you were little kids went into a sibling's room and took a toy that wasn't yours? How many of you, even as adults, have slipped a little something that you shouldn't have taken? That's two of ten. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, a.k.a. you shall not lie. Has anybody here told a lie ever in their life? Well, that's three out of ten. Um, you shall not covet your neighbor's anything. You shall not want something that isn't yours. Yeah, I think that uh, that's four. Uh, yeah, and I think that's enough. I think that's enough. You get the idea. If God's standard of goodness is that you never lie, you never steal, you never uh, disrespect your parents, you never want, desire, covet things that aren't yours, then every single person in this room has failed to be a good person, including me. We have all failed to be good people. And Jesus comes onto the scene and says, it doesn't matter how many good works you do now because it's already too late. Imagine somebody were to step before a judge and say, yeah, I know I beat up an old lady and stole her purse, but I volunteer at a soup kitchen every week for the last like 10 years. So I'm good to go, right? My good works outweigh my bad works. What would the judge say? Say, I don't care that you volunteered at a soup kitchen. That has absolutely nothing to do with what you did. You're going to face the punishment for what you've done. All of these objections come to Jesus as he approaches the Jews. He says, you're not good enough. You need to turn away from your sin, of your sin of trying to be good enough. And you need to follow me. You need to put your faith and trust in me. And this was completely insulting to the Jews who believed that they were God's chosen people. They were the ones who God loved. Them and only them. Eventually, Jesus comes to Mark chapter 7. I mean, you know. Eventually, Jesus comes to Mark chapter 7, and the Pharisees, the, these people were the, the, the top, most amazing religious people in the world. They had most of the Old Testament memorized. They had laws for their laws. They were the best. And when Jesus told them, you need to repent, they were more insulted than anybody else. And they began to question Jesus and, and, and his disciples about why they weren't following the traditions of the Jews. Now, I'm not going to get into it a whole lot, but Jesus is saying, Jesus says in, in Mark 7, verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. He's saying that you have stepped outside of the realm of following God and you are now just following each other and trying to outdo each other and being the best fake good. 
And that's not what Jesus, what God is looking for in followers. He's not looking for people who are pretending to be good. He's looking for people who have their faith and their trust in him and him alone. That's what Jesus wants from us. That's what Jesus commands from us. Not that we would be amazing, spectacular, wonderful, generous, kind, not mean people, but that we would follow him. And so Jesus, after all of these things, after all of these debates and fights and problems with the Jews, in verse 24 of Mark chapter 7, he leaves the Jews for a time and goes to the Gentiles. So Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24, I'm going to read the rest of the chapter. Please stand in reverence for God's word. Mark seven twenty four, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered into a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the little children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha. That is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Amen. Please be seated. So Jesus has spent approximately two years exclusively talking to Jews. And now he heads out into Gentile territory. Gentile just means people who aren't Jews. That's what the Jews called everybody else, Gentiles. It was kind of a dirty word. It was uh, these Gentiles, people who were not Jews, not circumcised, weren't following the food laws, weren't pure. They considered them to be unclean and completely unsavable, that they were beyond done. They were completely... Um, finished, essentially. And Jesus has just actually had a debate with the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the religious elites of Israel, about who was clean and who is unclean, who is pure, who is impure, who is savable and who is not savable. And the Jews actually had this hand-washing routine that they did because they would have to go into the market sometimes and buy food and Every once in a while, they would brush up against a Gentile. And these people were unclean. You know, the modern vernacular would be yucky. These people were, were not to be touched. And so they would come home and they would have this 
ceremony where they would purify their hands. They would wash them and they would let the water drip down to their elbows and they would do this. And, and that was kind of their tradition to make sure that when they, if they touched uh, an unclean Gentile person and then touched food and ate it, they weren't getting the uncleanness of the Gentile into their body through their food that they touched. So very uh, judgmental and uh, unfounded hatred of non-Jews. And Jesus says that it's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean. It's the things that come out of a person, like your evil words or the things that you do that you're not supposed to do from your heart, actually, is what he says, that it's from within, from the heart of a man. This is uh, Mark 7, verse 21, from within, from the heart of a person comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And so Jesus in saying these things has now made it clear that even the Jews are impure and unclean because these things come out of the Jews too. They're immorality and their wickedness and their deceit, their envy and their pride. These things come from within. And so to prove his point that there is nobody who is unclean, unsavable, completely impure, he takes his 12 followers, his disciples, and he heads into the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is a completely Gentile population. And there he meets this woman who's a Syrophoenician uh, from Phoenicia. And she comes to him and she begs him to cast the demon out of his daughter. Her daughter, sorry. Out of her daughter. And in order to help his disciples understand what his goal is, you know, his goal in life is to bring the word of God to the Jews, to bring salvation to the Jews. He has gathered some disciples and he is going to send them to go out to the Gentiles. But primarily, he was going to focus his ministry on that little strip of land to that very particular group of people. And he was going to call them to repentance. He trains up his disciples. And then after he dies, rises again and ascends into heaven, he sends them out to go into Jerusalem, Judea, the Jewish territory, and then into Samaria, which is half Jew, half Gentile mixed group of people who the Jews hated, and then into the ends of the earth so that they would go to all of the Gentiles. And so he is beginning to train them, to teach them for that mission. And so he brings his disciples and this woman comes to them and he shows off her faith in a sense because he gives her a discouraging answer when she asks him to cleanse her daughter. He says, let the children be fed first. For it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. Now, if, if you're her, you're thinking, well, that's a cruel thing to say. But Jesus is going to use this woman as an example of faith, especially contrasted to the Jews who have no faith in him. He's going to take this woman, which they didn't like women back then. The Jews didn't associate with Gentiles unless they had to, but then only with Gentile men. They didn't even speak to Gentile women. 
And so Jesus comes to this woman who is a Gentile, totally impure, unsavable. It is totally culturally taboo for him to talk to this woman. And he calls her a dog. But she persists. She's like, yeah, maybe I am a dog. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She's just looking for a few crumbs of Jesus's mercy. And Jesus says, for that statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. She didn't convince Jesus. Jesus was going to do it anyway, because Jesus is a compassionate and gracious God who loves people and who has compassion for the lost and compassion for the broken. But he's got a whole bunch of his disciples who are Jewish men who have never spoken to a Gentile woman before. And he's going to say, look at this woman. Look at her persistence. Look at her faith. She has more faith. She's just asking for crumbs of mercy from God. And she has more faith than any Jew that I have seen up till now. That's maybe reading between the lines a little bit. But I think it's true that he is showing this woman off. Like I said before, Jesus, his primary mission was to the Jews. He, he didn't go to Rome and speak to the emperor. He went to Jerusalem and he spoke to the priests. He spoke to the religious establishment. He didn't come to reform governments. Jesus was not a political man. He came to reform hearts. The government can never reform hearts. The government has many great roles in the world to care for the needs of citizens, but they can never lead people to a saving faith in Christ. Only the church holds the keys to that kingdom and can hand out passports to get in. Jesus went to the people of Israel and he called them to himself. But this Gentile woman shows amazing faith. She goes to Jesus and she begs him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And even after Jesus replies in a very discouraging manner that the, the children of Israel are to be cared for first, that that's his primary mission, she persists. And Jesus uses this persistence as a demonstration of the failure of the Jews to accept him. And as a demonstration that the kingdom will be expanded to include the Gentiles, something that the Jews never considered before. Because Jesus has compassion for lost people. It doesn't matter what their race is. It doesn't matter what their politics are. It doesn't matter what their sexual orientation is. Jesus has mercy on lost people. He has compassion. Even though this woman was someone that the Jews had no time for, Jesus loved her enough to give her some crumbs of mercy to save her daughter. Do you realize that there are tons of lost people out there? People who don't look like you or talk like you or share your political views or share your skin color, but they are lost people and they need God's grace just as much as you. Amen. Maybe even less, to be honest. Amen. They need God's grace. 
because they're constantly going their own way, living their own life, and refusing to follow Christ. Are you like the Jews who find those people disgusting, weird, or frustrating? I love the things that uh, Larry said at the beginning of the service where Jesus breaks down lines between people groups. And that's the way it should be. And when you look at the state of our politics, all it's ever doing is just putting up walls between people. You want to talk about division? Look at the United States. And the, the divide between white people and, and people of just every other skin color. Man, we need to repent. We need to stop considering ourselves to be better than somebody based on how much money they make. Or what color their skin is. We need to start serving other people. We need to start leading people to Christ. We need to give up on our own comfort sometimes. We need to stop trying to make people look like us. In our town, there is a great divide between different kinds of people. And we don't really mix a whole lot. We don't like them. Oftentimes... You know, it's a logger and a hippie or whatever you want to classify people as. Amen. <laughs> That's not right. And if you're one of those two and you kind of hate the other kind or look down on them or think that they're lazy or wish that they would change, then the problem is not with them. The problem is with you. And you need to change and you need to repent. And if you're a white person and you think that all the problems are with the black people, that they just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, then you need to repent. And you need to have compassion and mercy on people. And if you're a, a liberal and you just think, man, those conservatives, they just suck. I hate them. They have no compassion. They have no love for people. And the problem is not with them. The problem is with you. And you need to repent. And you need to have compassion for people. And if you're a conservative and you think that the liberals are ridiculous, then you need to repent. And you need to have compassion. Because that's what Jesus did. The term Christian means little Christ. And that means that when a person calls themselves a Christian, it means that they're be tr trying to be like Christ in the world. And if you want to be like Christ, then you need to not get annoyed and frustrated and upset with people who don't live the way that you do. You need to have compassion on people. You have love for people. That's what it means to be a Christian. I'm really passionate about this because I've, I've been watching a lot of politics lately and I've found out that I am a terrible person. Because I think, what's wrong with those people? Why can't they just get over themselves? And then I read a passage like this where Jesus goes to the kind of person that everybody around him would say, what's wrong with that person? And he has compassion. He has love for them. And cares for them. And it goes both ways. 
whether you're a conservative or a liberal, it goes both ways. You need to repent. You need to follow Jesus and follow his example. So Jesus then, after meeting this woman and, and showing how the Gentiles have more faith than the Jews, he goes to this region called the Decapolis. Decapolis means ten cities. It's the region of the ten cities. And in this area, there are, it is controlled entirely by Gentiles. It's ruled by a Gentile ruler. It's a region technically in Israel. But it is primarily Gentile territory. Jesus had an encounter with a guy uh, in Mark, I think it's, I don't know, Mark chapter 5, I think, uh, where he meets up with this guy who has a lot of demons, and he casts the demons out into a herd of pigs, which is a sign that it's a Gentile territory because if there's one thing that everybody knows about Jews is that they don't eat pigs. And so they wouldn't have pigs around. Why would they? They don't eat them. So it's a Gentile territory. And so Jesus is there, and he's, he's still showing off the faithfulness of the Gentiles over against the Jews and showing that he has compassion for the Gentiles. He's showing the Jews that he has compassion for the Gentiles. And so they bring him a man who is deaf and has a speech impediment, and he takes him aside, and he touches his ears as a sign you know, think about it. This man is deaf, and so Jesus has to communicate with this guy non-verbally. And so Jesus touches his ears, acknowledging that this man has a problem with his ears. And then he spits and touches the man's tongue. Now, why would he spit? That seems like a weird thing to do. But back in, in ancient Israel, when physicians were helping people, and if they had like a concoction they would make, they would spit into the concoction because they believed that saliva had healing properties. And so Jesus touches his ears, spits, and touches his tongue and says, I'm going to heal your ears and your tongue. And then he breathes out a sigh. Because he's showing this man, I have compassion for you. I understand what you're going through. I know your problems. He breathes out a sigh. He has sorrow for this man's condition. He has sorrow for what this man has gone through in his life. Because this man has had problems. And then he says the healing words. He says, well, just a word in Aramaic, ephaphtha, which means be opened. So for us, it's words. For them, it's word. You know, with words, God created the heavens and the earth. And with one word, he can open the ears and loose the tongue of a man. This was an astonishing miracle to these people. I mean, can you imagine a man that you've known all your life who has been deaf all of his life, and now suddenly he can hear and he can talk perfectly fine? Jesus charges them to tell no one, but they wouldn't stay silent. So why would Jesus charge them to say nothing to anyone? Well, he wasn't there to be political. We know from... Uh, especially the Gospel of John, that was a big thing. That when Jesus did miracles, they, they grabbed him and they, and they wanted to make him king. And so he would, he would flee from those people because he wasn't interested in rising against the political establishment and overthrowing it as a conquering ruler. He was there for hearts, not for swords. And so he tells them to keep it a secret. 
He wasn't interested in the growing sentiment to make him the king to fight the Romans. He did his best to keep his identity quiet until the appropriate time. But the more that he had compassion on people, the more that he saved them, the more he became famous. And the only logical thing to do when someone saves you, when someone makes you able to talk, is that you say, this guy made me able to talk. Isn't that impressive? And so this man went throughout all the region and began to tell everybody, that Jesus made it so that I can talk and I can hear you, and isn't that amazing? Jesus has compassion on lost people. Which, by the way, includes us. We often like to think of ourselves as the found ones. But we are very often just as lost as everybody else. I went on my little diatribe there to try and illustrate that point that when we look down on other people it's a sign that we're lost when we have when we despise you know we live in Canada when we despise the natives the indigenous people it's a sign that we're lost and that we have no love to speak of and that we're not being like Christ that in fact we're being the opposite of Christ We need to repent of those things. Jesus has compassion on us. And he understands that you get irritated with people. And he understands that you have political differences with people. And he loves you anyway. He has compassion on you. In your failure to be a good person. In your failure to love people the way that you're supposed to. And to have compassion. And so respond to that compassion with repentance. Turn away from your attitudes, turn away from your strivings to be good enough and put your faith in Christ. Because when Christ lived on the earth, he lived a perfect life on your behalf and then paid the price that you deserve to pay for your sins. He took it on himself. He suffered and he died for the sins of people who consider themselves to be better than others. That's what he did. So put your faith in him. And when a person puts their faith in Christ, his righteousness, his goodness, is credited to your account. So that when God looks at you, he does not see a sinful person. He sees the goodness and the righteousness of Christ. It is only by putting faith in Jesus that you can be saved. Turn away from your sinful lifestyle of going your own way, of being like the Jews who thought they were good people but aren't. Put your faith in the goodness of Christ, which is given for you. You know, Jesus died for your sins, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave as a sign that this is true. Like the deaf man, Jesus knows your problems. He knows how you've been oppressed in your life. He knows about how you've been abused. He knows about your physical problems. He knows about your emotional problems. And he has compassion on you because of them. And one way or another, 
He will set you free. It might not be in this life, but he will set you free if you put your faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to stop striving after our own way, that you would help us to repent of our pride and foolishness in considering ourselves to be better than other people. I pray that you would help us to see people the way that you see them, that you have compassion and that you love and that you're willing to die so that people can be saved. I pray that like the Gentile woman, we would approach you with persistence, that we would approach you in faith, looking for just a few crumbs of your mercy and that you would give it freely. Father, I pray that if there are any people in this room who are not Christians, that you would save them by the power of your spirit, that you would lead them to repentance and faith in Christ. I pray that as we go from here, that you would lead us, that you would walk with us, that you would change us. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing.